Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Roxana, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Well, I, I lied. I told you I'm, I'm sick as heck, but I'm pumped <laughs> to be talking to you. <laughs> Very excited to be talking to you. I wish, like I said, I wish the book were more of a happy topic, but it's an incredible accomplishment. So congratulations yeah. on that. Thank I, you. It's actually in the last chapter, or like the epilogue, where you, you mentioned you know parts of your own life that kind of informed this book. Mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hone in on your um, home or hone? Home. I'd love to home in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> homing pigeon i love to home in on your um your reading and writing life i mean were you the kid that was always reading the always at the library checking out 15 books um, writing little stories and poems how did that work um yeah i actually um i was a big reader from a young age um i'm the youngest of three in my family and so um, my dad is also a very big avid reader. So we were reading stuff um, like Charles Dickens, really young, and that kind of thing. Um, stuff, right? Yeah, actually, it was like pretty intense stuff. And I think that um, it's interesting, because I have a kiddo now who's in first grade. And so like, at that, that was sort of the age that I was um, reading A Tale of Two Cities. And I think that, you know, that probably ha- has some influence on what I ended up choosing to write about. Sure. Yeah. My second grader is really into the babysitters club. Oh, cool. Which is yeah. so cool to see. So they're it's like based on in and Martin's books. They're like they're graphic novels with different authors. Oh yeah. I I've seen yeah. I got one for my niece actually. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> eat them up. So that's cool. As, as you got into like high school and college, um, what what were you reading? And also like where was the switch turned on for for writing? Were you was there someone you really admired who said and you're a heck of a writer or how did that work? That's a good question. Um, so in high school, I remember reading a lot of classics. Um, I have a very vivid memory of Anna Karenina. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I've always wanted to be a writer since I was little, since I was like seven. Um but it wasn't like the journalism piece didn't come until a little bit later. Um, when I was in college, I I was like an undeclared major for a couple of years. And then like I decided that I wanted to do journalism at that time. Hmm. I think because it sort of merges the writing piece with the like talking and communicating piece. Sure. Um, and also it's just you're talking to new people all the time. And so it's not, um, it's always interesting because it's always new and different, you know? It's like being a teacher, right? I mean, I think, I'm, I don't know if I'm speaking for you, what type of people like it's trouble, it's troublesome to be behind the desk and 
inserting stuff into an Excel spreadsheet, the same, you know, same stuff every day or whatever. Yeah, I think for for some people, and I'm one of these people, I, I need to have some stimulation every day. That's a little bit different, you know. Um, yeah. I do get bored when I'm like once I figure out the challenge, I don't want to dwell there for for too long, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talked to a lot of authors who started out in journalism or continued in journalism, and a lot of them were like on the crime beat or like obituaries or something maybe kind of smaller, not, not necessarily smaller, but maybe not as well known, not on the front page. What kind of articles were you writing? What, what hooked you in about journalism? Um, so very early on, I was, uh, I did, I worked for the school paper at the university of Texas. Um, and so that was just like general assignment, all sorts of stuff. I did like party reporting for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in party in, reporting, yeah, yeah. You had, just you had to get your, your your Gonzo, your uh, Gonzo journalism on. You had to go. Yeah, kind of. You, you had to party with them. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, it was fun. Um, you know, it was like a way to again just sort of explore things that I might not otherwise explore. Um, you know, in my regular life. So, uh, but you know, like my first journalism jobs were. I was a copy editor for New York Magazine. Okay. So I just copy edited a huge volume of information um, every day. It was, mm. it was really intense because I did the website. Mm. Um, and then I was a breaking news stringer for the oh. New York Daily News. And so um, that was like very much crime heavy, um, mm. kind of like it was like shift work basically they'd call you mm -hmm. and send you somewhere in the five boroughs and you'd you know need to chase down a person or like stake out someone's house in case they came outside or things like that <laughs> wow did was your was your writing legible at the parties <laughs> the next day you're like um, what was this well, they're more like essays, you know, so like you okay. go, you do something and then you write about it like, okay. oh, this was like a person I talked to and, you know, yeah. like I did a whole bunch of stuff like that. And my I teach high school English and I, I still use this. It's really basic, but it's so good. We do like compare and contrast. I teach this piece from the University of Texas school paper. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but it's basically about like, should we continue with football, you know, and all the money spent on football, right, in the program mm -hmm. versus like the Asian studies program. And it puts them side by side, you know, it's like they're number whatever, three in the country in football. And so-and-so is the, you know, best known, you know, teacher of Vietnamese in the country. You know what I mean? It was, mm -hmm. it's really good for what we're trying to get across. And I always remember that one, just about like how the Asian studies department, I'm sure among, among many other programs gets this much. And the football program is king. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big issue in Texas specifically. Like, I mean, football other is big there? No. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Friday Night Lights. So I wonder about as you've gotten into more contemporary times, who are some of the the writers? They don't have to be journalists that you like, man, I can't wait. You know, so-and-so is coming out with her new book or his new essay. Yeah. Some contemporary writers who really challenge you and, and impress you. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I've been, my reading habits have been really weird. Like as like, you know, because when I was working on the book for like, a big chunk of time I was reading a lot in my subject, you know, um, matter. And so, and I was also doing like some reading a lot of nonfiction to see sort of how people were structuring things. 
um, and how I like while I was thinking about how I wanted to structure things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so but then like since the book has been out, I've had a little bit more time to read for pleasure. Um, and I'm still reading like to keep, you know, I, I think it's really, you know, I also want to be like a good literary citizen by reading yeah. um, and blurbing people like I know people, you know what I'm saying? Like people did for me. And so, mm. um, you know, I've been reading, it's, it's weird. I've been reading a lot of Larry McMurtry. Okay. Country Dove or True Grid or one Yeah. Um, Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. There Lonesome Dove is this famous one. Yeah. I read that this summer. And I read Terms of Endearment, which mm -hmm. is a movie. Um, and I had seen the movie and the book was like totally, it was very different than the movie. And it was really cool. But like, <laughs> he's a he's a famous Texas writer. And so he writes about Texas, like in all these different ways, not just, mm -hmm. the, I mean, The Lonesome Dove is his most famous and it's very cowboy kind of history. Um, but there's like, like Terms of Endearment, the reason I picked it up is because I had, we had moved away from Houston um about a year and a half ago so I live in Dallas now mm. um but we had lived in Houston for eight years and I was missing Houston and Terms of Endearment um is set there it's set okay. there like in the I think like in the early 80s mm. so it's a different it's a bit of a different Houston than the one that I knew but um yeah. but he nailed it I think mm. so Rockets or Mavericks I mean or neither <laughs> yeah I'm not too much of a sports lady. I think when, when we lived in Houston, um, the Astros won the World Series. So that was exciting. Um, but I really, you know, my my husband is from New York. So he's like mm. a, you know, Giants, uh -huh. Mets. All the above. So that's kind of, you know, I defer to him, I guess, because he's a fan and I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. You can talk as, as much or as little as you want. I wonder about how like real world, real world experiences, which you like talk about like, in the last chapter, how much that maybe kind of um, drew you towards. I'm just, I'm basically just asking about seeds for the book. Like what, what drew you towards it? I mean, you, you talk about it in the beginning, how you have a friend in Portland who kind of passed it on and mm -hmm. connection, but I guess just in general, um, all or no personal experience, whatever you'd like to say. And then just about how you were drawn to this project. Yeah. Um, there's like a lot, I feel like there's like a lot of different answers to that. Um, you know, the, yes, the short answer would be like, I got a breaking news assignment and that like was about finding the birth, one of the birth families, um, of the Hart family kids. So that was the immediate, um, the immediate like impetus for this book. But I think what happened was I had been doing some stories about the child welfare system already. And so when I got the assignment, I kind of was already seeing it through the lens of the child welfare system. Mm. Um, and I think, I mean, it's kind of taken me, you know, at the, at the end of the book, I talk about my childhood and how, you know, I had sort of an unstable childhood um, my parents got divorced when I was 12 and then like, so we had a pretty stable time up until that point. But then after that, I was really, um, kind of on my own a lot and, you know, um, getting into trouble here and there and, 
you know, like experiencing some kinds of violence. And, you know, I, it struck me, um, when I started doing reporting about the foster care system, just mm. how relatable the kids were to me, mm. like I understood what they were going through, um, to an extent, like I understood, I understood some of the, the, um, like the coping strategies that they were, you know, so like, um, Dante, he's the older brother of three of the kids. Um, and I spent a lot of time with Dante. He's a major person in the book. Um, but you know, his coping strategy was anger and I could really recognize that it just seemed very like, I felt like he had a lot of reasons to be angry. And I also feel like when things happen to you as a child that, um, that make you feel abandoned or alone, then you at your, at the, at that stage of development, right. Which is like not an adult brain. You are, um, you're like set into a survival mode of like, what, how do you make sure you're okay? Mm-hmm. And then that can be just like, you know, for Dante, that has basically set the course of his whole life. Like the yeah. things that happened to him when he was very young and got removed from his family you know? Mm. Um, and so I think like, it's taken me a while to sort of like understand, you know, and I still think about like, how did I really, um, cause in, <laughs> cause in one way it felt like the story came to me and it felt really like I was meant to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, but, but I think the other thing is there's like this personal history that I have that, um, that that makes something like this, which is a very kind of a dark and bleak project, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I wouldn't like I would not necessarily choose this subject yeah, yeah, yeah. myself, but right. it felt like it was laid there for me to do and that it was really important that somebody did it. And I felt like I was in the best position to do it. Mm. So the book called we were once a family a story of love death and child removal in america that's the trend these days right is a long subtitle yeah (laughs) yeah they (laughs) yeah um it's funny because they all sort of sound the same i've seen like Mm -hmm. titles that have like blank (laughs) blank and blank in america you know right definitely definitely. i think Uh, it signals that it's like an important read to people you know yeah And and this one definitely is Tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, obviously you can buy it anywhere, but do you have any you know favorite bookstores or, or places to buy it? And tell us about your your online footprint too. Where can we find you online? Oh, that's a good question. Um, okay, so my website is roxanaasgarianwrites.com. Two N's in your first name, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And geez, I love a lot of uh, bookstores, but if I could pick one, I would say mm-hmm. Writer's Block in Las Vegas. Um, okay. that's, where, that's my hometown. Ah. and it's an amazing store and the people are so nice and I did an event with them that was really lovely and wonderful because it was all my family and friends (laughs) oh very cool very cool the book talks about you know you 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 talked about already a little bit the explanation you explain the child welfare system in quotes child welfare system you call it actually a large web of county city state agencies um, you know, at the time you wrote this, you said something about 425,000 kids are that it's responsible for this this system with a capital S, right? And so you talked about your a, a reporter friend connecting and telling you about the Hart family. And you wrote about in the opening of the book about how you were really interested in power and the power mm-hmm. dynamic. 
I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about the, the terrible um, incident and then maybe about um, how you kind of sought out power and looked into where that was in the story. Sure. Um, I think that, you know, I've always been drawn to stories that are about power dynamics and power differentials. So like, I always think about the sort of systemic aspect of whatever the individual story is. And I think that, you know, true crime is a booming Mm -hmm. industry. Um, And some of what kind of bothers me about some true crime is that Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's all about the story and it ends up leaving you with an idea that it's a very individual, like whatever the crazy thing that happened was, is like a very individual. Uh Um, And so the story of the Hart family, um, it happened in March, 2018. It was two white ladies who were a married couple. um, And they're, they had adopted six black children from Texas. Um, And so they had, they found their car at the bottom of a cliff in California. So the, the women had driven their children and themselves off a cliff um, and there were no survivors. So that is like a very, I would say made for a true crime moment. Right. And one did happen um, in the wake of this story. So I, I got involved writing about the birth family that was living in Houston. Cause that's where I was living at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was seeing the coverage of the broader story, um, and really kind of getting frustrated because there was really no conversation at all about the child welfare system in the stories. So it sort of started with their adoption and went until their murder. Right. And, but like the kids came from somewhere and they had their own individual stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was interested in that. And I was also interested in um, sort of decentering the women from the story because, you know, they were sort of attention seeking people, meaning mm-hmm. like they were on social media and they had like a big following and it, um, it felt very much like a performance. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, you know, the act was so heinous and the response was kind of really like, oh, these women must have been really overwhelmed. And to me, I thought like, first of all, I don't really, I don't really buy that as an excuse. And secondly, um, I'm just, you know, having written about the child welfare system in the past, I re- I knew how awful um, it was for people in foster care. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I felt like the story was much deeper than what was being shown, which was almost exclusively about the women and their like intentions and motivations um, and not so much at all about the kids themselves. Mm-hmm kind of back and forth with the chronology but like towards the end there they had an inquest which sounds like it's out of like 1500s england or something right yeah which, which sounds like it had like no power it just seems like yeah. it was ridiculous well so the thing about the inquest was there was no one to put on trial because everyone was dead but um they chose to do an inquest so that they would have an official cause of death for the record mm-hmm. um for all the members of the family and because I think it, a lot of it did have to do with the like huge amount of media attention that the case got. So, 
Um, it was interesting because it definitely, I mean, it was very useful for as a reporter mm-hmm. because they had, uh, they released a whole huge amount of investigative files and, um, you know, they, they kind of like walked through step-by-step mm. the crime scene and things like that. Um, so that was helpful for me, like as a reporter, but yeah. also, yeah, in the inquest, it was still like, it was um, as if the cops were going out of their way to kind of like, in my mind, I thought that they were maybe trying to um, spare the feelings of the women's family members, Mm. because I know at least one of the women's families went to the inquest and didn't go like in person, like they were going to go and then they decided Uh to go. So um but, you know, the other thing is, like, these kids had families, and those families were interested and watched the inquest as well. And so it was interesting to hear, like, who they were, um, like, who's the narrative for? Mm-hmm. The narrative that the women were really overwhelmed with just all these pressures in their lives, mm-hmm. you know, because that also basically blames the children for being traumatized and, and like that. None mm-hmm. of that is their fault, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. Well, you know, I mean, the elephant in the room, right, is is race. Um, right. I don't think I don't think I'm saying anything extra intelligent, but if this were if this were black women, this would not have been the same, right? They wouldn't have gotten this story. They wouldn't have got the Thelma Louise. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that Thelma Louise um, comment that one of the I think prosecutors made? Yeah, it was the um, the Mendocino County Sheriff had said, "Is this a Thelma and Louise situation?" And that really. Sh- struck me as just a very inhumane way to describe it Mm -hmm. because you know Selma and Louise is about two women who choose to um commit suicide you know rather than be taken in by the law and there's no kids in the backseat you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's no murder element to it Mm -hmm. and it's so it really um you know, I think race is a huge part of the story. And that was another piece that I felt like wasn't being done very well. Like people were saying, oh yeah, these kids are black. You know, the other thing is that um, if those, if the moms weren't adoptive moms, I wonder if they'd be Mm -hmm. getting so much of the benefit of the doubt, you know, because we actually are really hard on moms. (laughs) Like our culture and society is really hard on moms. And so it's interesting. It was interesting to see the situation where people were kind of bending over backwards to paint the women in the, in the kindest possible light. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that like what the actual evidence showed was like really horrific, you know? Um, And it was a pattern of behavior over a decade. So it's not like, Oh, I just had a really, you know, I was having a really hard time. Whatever the reasoning Mm -hmm. was, it felt like it didn't really match with the facts of the case um and it was very dehumanizing to the kids you know big time yes i really liked your word choice you called the book a corrective you know this idea of not sidelining the birth families there's towards the beginning of the book it talks about jen and sarah hart the 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 adoptive parents they were the kind of parents that the world desperately needs one of the friends had said and there was the Devonte hart who was one of the adoptive kids foster children um he had the hug shared around the world and unfortunately, you know, that God, that was so troubling to read the, I think it's just one sentence that says he has never been found, right? Yeah. I wonder about that. You talked a little bit about it, but that idea of performative, 
I don't know, social justice or whatever you want to call it. This, you know, in this, how in that famous picture that, you know, really didn't capture what he was feeling. Yeah. So this, this famous picture was Devante, which was one of the kids, um, hugging a police officer at a protest for, it was a black lives matter protest, um, in the wake of the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Mm. Um, and Devante was hugging the cop and crying like, you know, pretty, pretty, um, lots of tears, lots of pain sure, in his sure. face. And the, and, and, you know, it, that, that image took off as like a sort of healing, an image of a healing mm. um, during, you know, and like CNN is, is the one who called it the hug shared around the world, but mm. it's all, it was all over the place. And it became, right. you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a propaganda image because mm. the, the thing is, um, people were reading into it what they wanted to see in it which yes. was you know racial reconciliation or good cops mm. um, you know Amazing. yeah and 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 what was going on for Devonte at that time was he was being abused his he and his siblings were being abused and malnourished mm. and um isolated and you know they were at that point in time they were not in school so they were you know um so his the anguish and the pain in his face um had a lot of causes potentially and again we're like we are projecting onto him when sure. we look at the image but i think like the fact that everyone jumped to this was what you know what they what they wanted to see um is actually part of this it's like part of the whole broader story right mm -hmm. like people looked at the family and saw the performance and wanted to see the performance. Yep. And behind that was a lot of awful stuff. There was a whole lot of signs. There were a lot of opportunities to um, remove the kids, to protect the kids, to um, to stop the abuse. And those all went unheeded. And so, you know, it's a really brutally sad <sighs> frustrating and you know but I think it's just I think it's really important as a as like you said the corrective piece mm -hmm. because I feel like again you could you could learn all about the tragedy and walk away thinking wow that's just the crazy thing that happened mm. but, you know the things that happen to the birth families happen every day in the child welfare system yeah it's really common practice actually and so common that like really nobody even thought of it as a child welfare story which mm -hmm. is like that's not okay you know we, yeah. we kind of we need to do better mm. you use the word propaganda right i mean jennifer hart had this big facebook following and you know ideas of perception versus reality of course and later you know this idea that she's often sharing their mental histories the kids i mean that's that's not right um, yeah. and way too open about them and, and like you said performative Dante Davis. So his mom is Sherry. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you talked about, he had a, had a tough life to, to put it, to put it mildly. His mom had, had a drug program problem. She was one who ended up having to give away custody. We'll talk about that in a minute. Am I correct that she saw her mother shot and killed? Yeah. Trauma. Yeah. How do you, how do you measure traumas? Right. Yeah. And she was, she was 12. Yeah. Like you said, that really formative time in your life. Yeah. Yeah. But 
So Dante, I think it was very shocking to a lot of readers that he he actually tried to commit suicide at the age of 10. When he was fi like uh, uh, finally removed, you know, because mm -hmm. they a lot about foster care is they bounce you around and they try to, um, you know, but when he was finally removed, um, he did attempt suicide. And that was really, you know, um, so Dante wasn't adopted. His his siblings were, but because of his quote unquote behavior problems, um, he was kind of put on this other track for mm -hmm. more serious behavioral um, concerns. And so that ended up being like residential treatment for four years, you know, um, during which he was not allowed to have any contact at all with his family, even though he was local and they very much desired contact with him. Mm, um, and yeah. he, them, right. He was like really begging basically yes. his caseworkers to be able to see his siblings or hear about like, you know, mm. when the siblings moved to Minnesota, they did not clearly communicate that with Dante. And he just like never, he, he really like internalized them being him being split from them as his fault because he was a bad kid. Sure. And like, it's understandable that he thought that way because that's what everyone was telling him like mm. pretty explicitly like work on your behavior if you want to get out of this place you have you know you have to behave and he's just a really traumatized kid um in these like really awful circumstances essentially and he knew right he he was like i know that we're not seeing each other again like he yeah seemed to really to really just sense that early on i think he did and he also held out hope that okay. they would yeah. like you know at some point down the line, like, and I think the whole um, Davis family really thought, yeah. okay, well, they're going to turn 18 one day and they probably right. will, you know, seek us out again and we'll be there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and of course that didn't happen. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, the, you, you write about the, I forget the acronym, maybe ASFA, the Adoption <laughs> of Safe Families Act mm -hmm. of 97. And I don't, help correct me if I'm wrong here. Sherry Davis felt like she had pressure to give the kids to Priscilla, who was her sister-in-law, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And but the Adoption and Safe Families Act, basically, as soon as there was a re, they, they were looking to for reunification, but at the same time, as termination was applied for, mm -hmm. so working yeah. against against working in different directions, right? Yeah, so and in Texas, in Texas, it's still like that, where when when a kid is removed. They, um, cause you're federally re required to try to reunify kids with their parents, okay. but they also at the same time file for termination so that if there's any, if, if in any way they mess up, then the termination, uh, is already good to go. You don't have to like file a new petition, which is a pretty rare thing that Texas chooses to do, but it does kind of give the show the hand a little bit, you know what yes. I mean? Yes, totally. Um, where it's like you are saying that you can, you know that you want to reunify families and then you're also saying um but we just want to have it really quick so like aspa what what it does is it sets a timeline mm. for termination of parental rights mm. and that was because um in the 90s they were struggling with kids just sort of languishing in foster care and getting moved around a lot and so the idea was like okay we want permanency for these kids but permanency means different things to different people because yeah. some people see it as you know 
adoption essentially right we want permanency meaning they are like and the thing is you you can't get adopted if you have if your parents have their legal rights to you mm. because you only have parents so in sherry's case they said well you know you're not going to get custody back but you but priscilla who's her sister-in-law mm -hmm. um could get it you know she could adopt but she can't adopt until you relinquish and so she relinquished with the understanding that the, you know, the kid's aunt was going to adopt them. Sure. But then, you know, the thing is, it's very common for that to fall through because as soon as you terminate your rights, you have no say mm. and you also can't talk to them. Like you can't talk to your kids anymore. Ugh. So, um, you know, it is coercive because it's like they're trying to do what's best for their kids by setting mm -hmm. them up to be with someone that they know and that they know will take care of them. Yeah. But they don't have the power really to make any kind of decisions mm. about that. Sherry relinquished her rights to her kids. Like you talked about this Devante, Jeremiah and Sierra, they're sent to Minnesota. And mm -hmm. like you described, this was in judge Shelton's uh, courtroom. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy, you know, he's not objective. He's makes these incredibly racist comments and, he asked Latino parents, you know, he looks at the map, where are you from? Like, it'd be a good place to go back to, right? That kind of thing. And yeah. he definitely prized efficiency overall. Let's keep it moving. Yeah. So you, want, you wonder, right? How many, how many people did he, sentence is not the word, but how many people did he unfairly sentence, right? Yeah. And how many, um, how many lives and families sure. ever changed, you know, because these, these cases, they're not, they're in the civil courts, but they are so... I mean, I think a lot of parents would rather have a criminal case against them than have the mm. rights of their children taken away because yeah. that's a forever thing. You can't, you know, um, only in very, very um, specific cases could you like re like overturn a termination. And it's usually has to do with the judge messing up that bad, right? Like, so it's just like they call it the civil death penalty you know it's like you don't yeah so it's a really serious thing and so the idea of being really efficient about it you know yeah. the other thing is that a lot of the parents that are in the child welfare system are dealing with poverty i mean almost every single person in the child welfare system is dealing with poverty and then mm. poverty related conditions right mm. um, so insecure housing <sighs> drug use and, 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 and there's a lot of things, but so the idea that you could have a timeline and the timeline is like, um, pretty short, right. It's like a year mm -hmm. and a half, um, to get your life together in such a way that, you know, because sure. if you, you know, with, especially like Sherry was dealing with drug use mm -hmm. and drug use is hard for a lot of people, right? Like addiction mm -hmm. is a really difficult issue to solve um but there's like you know she's she's in poverty so she doesn't have access to treatment you mm -hmm. know the treatment that that she does have access to has extremely long waits and you can't you know and 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 you have this 15 and you're working against the 15 month timeline you know mm. yeah
you write about how there's, you know, there are adoption incentives. Texas got, I think the year that Devonte Jeremiah and Sierra went to Minnesota, Texas got 8.5 million in adoption incentives. And man, this was such a cryptic line. It really hit me quote, no one from the state ever check on them again. Yeah. Right. They were just, they were sent to Minnesota. I wonder about Bree is kind of like a harbinger. She was, mm -hmm. was she right before Devonte Jeremiah and Sierra? No, she was before the first um, okay. set of kids, okay. which was Marcus and Hannah and Abigail. Just how she was kind of a, what do you call it? Canary in the mind, so to speak. And, yeah. um, and that crazy Green Bay Packers story. Yeah. Yeah. So Brie was the, um, the first foster kid of Jennifer and Sarah. So when you mm -hmm. get your license, if you're, you know, um, you have to get all, you have to get your foster licenses, even when it was clear that Jen and Sarah were trying to foster to adopt. Like that's why mm -hmm. they were entering, sure. um, you know, the pool of foster parents. So they got Brie. She was a, a white girl, a teenager, um, her mom still had rights to her. Mm -hmm. um, there was some stuff happening at Bree's home that made um, it unsafe for her to be there with her mom. Mm -hmm. And so she was taken in by Jen and Sarah. It was like a pretty weird vibe situation from what right. she describes. Um, but then, yeah, so the the sort of thing that changed everything, at least to Bree's mind, because mm -hmm. Bree has always been confused about what actually happened. Um, but they went to a Green Bay Packers practice and um, the it was like the team was signing footballs and they signed Bree's football and they didn't sign Jen's football. Yeah. And then Jennifer didn't talk to Bree for like two weeks. Oh, my God. <laughs> and yeah, so then, you know, ultimately they dropped her off with her therapist one day and then the therapist told her like, okay, you're not going back and they've actually already packed all of your stuff and you're going to go to a different place. So they didn't say goodbye to her. And mm -hmm. it was right before they went to go adopt um, to bring home Marcus and Hannah and Abigail. So they were just like, mm -hmm. um, they kind of did a real quick switch on her and she yes. was like kind of extremely shocked by it. And it was, mm -hmm you know, very destabilizing for it's, that's one of the most destabilizing things about foster care is that mm -hmm. like, you never know who you can count on and you never know like how, like they may say, Oh, we're going to like the Jen and Sarah were telling her, you know, like we're going to have you until you're 18 if you want. And, you know, we're growing our family and you can be a part of it if you want. And then all of a sudden, like, we don't even say goodbye to you and we'll never mm -hmm. see you you go on to write about Minnesota. Correct me if I'm wrong, is like one of the states that has the most interstate adoptions. Mm -hmm. There was this permanent family resource center that maybe is is defunct, but they mm -hmm. helped with it. You write about the idea of the colorblind adoption. And obviously there are there are connections, ugly historical connections to like the Indian Removal Acts and right, and and taking taking Native Americans off the reservations and putting them in white families and what was it, kill the Indian, save the man. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel like you hear every day now about some other cemetery that was found or buried, buried yeah. kids, just horrible stuff. And also with black kids as well, about much more available, if you will, to be given out, I guess they given out like they're a thing, given out as far as adoption goes. I wonder what you found out about colorblind adoption. I mean, I mean, you wrote it. We, I mean, I'm sure there are 
legitimately loving families, of course, with mm-hmm. colorblind um, adoption, but obviously Jen and Sarah weren't, weren't that. Yeah. Well, and also like, you know, the idea that transracial adoptions will continue to exist, like that's pretty like, you know, I mean, I don't see a scenario in which they stop. Right. But mm-hmm. um, ultimately it's about recognizing that it's not just about you and your personal feelings of uh-huh. you know, it's about a system and like the systems that we live in, in our society. So not even just the child welfare system, but, you know, we are really like the child welfare system is set up to prioritize white people who want to adopt and look the part right quote unquote look the part yeah middle class white people so like Mm. you know um because there's a lot of white people involved in the child welfare system who are living in poverty you know who are getting treated in a different way like tammy which is the birth mom of the other three kids Mm. um but yeah the idea that like um that good families good good homes look like a very specific thing Mm that is influenced by the fact that many of the people who work within the system experience that like middle-class <laughs> life. Right. Um, you know, the idea that people like that poverty create, I mean, you know, it's true that poverty creates a lot of issues for families, mm-hmm. but the idea that families are personally responsible for the conditions of, um, you know, societal disenfranchisement, (laughs) like there's a lot more. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, I think it's a really sort of a, people have a lot of strong feelings about adoption and, you know, I think this book is sort of hopefully Mm. pushing back a little bit on some of the things that we just take for granted, because I think, you know, a lot of the benefit of the doubt comes from that, from people saying, oh, these people must be good people because they took in these children. Sure. And that's how we talk about. Selfless, right? Exactly. And that's how we talk about adoption, like in general. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I think there's a lot more nuance and a lot Mm -hmm. more specifics, you know, and a lot more things to learn about the system and the history for, and then, you know, I do think, of course, there are very, good adoptive parents they're they're good foster parents there are people mm-hmm. who really want to do right by kids who are struggling and that can be true while all this systemic stuff is also true mm-hmm. you know yes you follow dante as the book goes on into his late teens maybe early 20s i guess he's maybe in his mid-20s now yeah he's in his mid-20s now right. you know in the system which you talked about these behavioral places he was he was assaulted and when he finds out that his siblings were dead, he, he went astray. I mean, that's safe to say when he found yeah. out in 2018, right? Like you yeah. said, he always held out a little bit of hope, but that was dashed, unfortunately. Yeah. He, um, I think he really has struggled with his mental health, mm-hmm. um, really his, the majority of his childhood. But I think that, um, you know, when his, when he found out that his, well, when his siblings died, he was in prison um serving like three years for robbery Mm. so at that age i think he was like 21 or something Mm -hmm. 
And so he found out when he got out of prison and he just like, he did say, he said that was the last little hope I had in my life. Right. And I think it really bore out, you know, he, um, he just, he was really depressed and he was really, he just didn't see the point of mm-hmm. trying anymore. Right. Like trying to live a life and get like, he just was given, you know, he's like a person who didn't graduate high school, who no one ever really fully taught him to re- read, mm-hmm. never has had a job. Um, you know, he doesn't have a car or a computer, <laughs> like right. he's in a situation that's very, very hard to get out of. And then of he also just, you know, he has given up on mm. getting out of it, you know? Yeah. Towards the end, you you write about you mentioned Tammy and Rob. She herself, I believe, had, Tammy is the mother of of Hannah and and, and the others. Mm-hmm. Abigail and Marcus, yeah. Yes, she had her own sexual abuse, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, as a uh, kid. Yeah, as a as a small child. Right. Also about you know battered woman from from Rob, and just a lot of course going on in her life, a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. and just the the fight even over like the remains or the cremains, the cremation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug, remind me, Doug is the father of of Jennifer Hart, right? Man, that scene where you go to the garage and look through like what can I take as posters and drawings and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. I, I think you're going in order to bring it to the Davis family. Yeah, yeah. Right. Doug had said like go through the stuff. It was all mm-hmm. of the things that were Jennifer's like from the from their last place that they lived. Uh huh. And he had, he had them in a bunch of boxes in his garage, and he said go through them. And if the um, birth parents want anything like photos or mementos or things like that. Um, And I realized that Doug hadn't really gone through any of it either. Mm. And that's because I think it was really hard for him. Like the whole thing was really hard for, uh, for, I mean, everybody that was involved, Mm. um, was grieving right mm-hmm. in different mm-hmm. ways and and um you know because people grieve differently and then like the way that people were situated to the kids mm-hmm. you know like um for Doug I think there was a lot of guilt and a lot of shame about yeah. his daughter doing something so awful sure. that he was still trying to sort of wrap his mind around but yeah, you know, uh, he wanted to give some of the remains of the kids to their birth families. And that's what the birth families had really wanted. And yeah. um, and so I was really, really glad, you know, uh, honored really to not, I don't know, glad's the right word. It was a sure. very intense, um, mm-hmm. like that was probably the most intense part of the whole thing. But I, um, I was I was honored to be able to, to help make that happen right. for them, you know. Yeah, obviously you you can you can understand. I I can't empathize, but I can sympathize with Doug. I mean, like you said, um, an absolute so much sadness. But it seems like even with the fight over the cremains and the fold and the folders and stuff, like Doug and the other father's name was Alan. Okay, <laughs> and and again, they're they're obviously more than eligible to to mourn yeah. to grieve. But what about the the families that you really center? You center the Davis family. You center their stories, their histories. Um, you know, you talked about earlier how I think Hannah was one of them and some of the kids would go and complain to the neighbors about being, getting food withheld and not, not blaming it on them at all, but just, there were signs. 
Yeah. And there were there were people who tried to make make it work. I there's no there's no silver lining here, but I wonder if you could end by talking about the great I want to say Nathaniel, the older gentleman who's like mm-hmm. the surrogate father. Yeah, sure. I so Nathaniel was one of the people that I became closest to um working on the book. So mm-hmm. he was he, he isn't the bio father of the Davis kids. So that's Dante, Devante, Sierra, and Jeremiah. Um but he was their father figure for their, mm-hmm. like, while, you know, for their whole lives. And so, and he was much older than his wife, Sherry. Yeah. So um, he was like a really stabilizing person and he, he was sober as well. So, you know, the idea that like the kids couldn't be at home because their mom had a, a problem with drugs. Um, it's a, well, first of all, it's a little bit reductive because a lot of people have problems with drugs and are mm-hmm. parenting. And that's real, you know, right, right, right. but also just, you know, they did have a safe person. And I know that because he, um, he never gave up on the kids. Mm-hmm. And actually when Dante was 16, he, he was able to get, Nathaniel was able to get custody of him again. So he yeah. didn't age out of the system. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they let him be with, like, they gave Dante to Nathaniel when he was 16, but they wouldn't give it him to him when he was 10 you know they could have avoided a lot of yes trauma on dante by just letting him stay with his dad mm-hmm. nathaniel passed away last oh no giving yeah um oh, dang it. 2022 so mm-hmm. he, he wasn't able to see the book come out oh man um oh. but we had a really cool connection and he was a really great person and yes, i think yes. you know i hope he would have liked how it turned out yeah dependable 100 percent, right mm. for sure and and really crucial to me to do the reporting because he was dependable and it's hard yeah. with stories uh, like about people who are marginalized it's it's hard mm-hmm. to like get a hold of them sometimes you know sure. or they'll their number will change and you know so he was really mm-hmm. invaluable in that regard as well mm. I hope it's a lighter, it's lighter uh, fair, but I wonder maybe about any future projects you're working on that you want to share. Um, well, so, you know, I have honestly been recovering <laughs> a lot. I can see that. Year. Yeah. Um, because, you know, uh, that was a really, really, sh- it took a lot out yeah. of me. Okay. And I, you know, I would like to do, I don't know. It's like, you know, you get so down the well of one thing and I don't think I want to do, um, I know I want to do something different, but it's like you kind of have to change mm. enough about your life for your for the new things to come in, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm kind of in that process right now. Well, so appreciative of talking to me. Thanks for sharing. Um, it Thanks for, for shining a light on the Davis family and on the child welfare system. Very educational, incredibly moving. And, you know, there's it's a great book, but it's also an important book. So congratulations and thanks again for talking to me. Yeah, thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. What a pleasure it's been to speak with Roxana Asgarian. Continue good luck to her with her writing and important work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chills of Will podcast. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. 
You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1, the number one. You can also subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel, YouTube version, while you're checking out this episode. Like what you heard today? Please retweet episode info, share on social media, and via word of mouth. It all helps and is very much appreciated. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Well podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 220 with Neef Ekpaduam, a writer and journalist from South London who documents the people, voices, and communities of modern Britain. He has written for publications including The Guardian, GQ, Vogue, and Vice. In 2022, he was named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in media and marketing. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and his newest book is called Where We Come From, Rap, Home, and Hope in Modern Britain. And he has today, January 18th, as his pub day, which is also the day in which this episode will also go live with Neef. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Roxana Asgarian, whose work, like We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America, gives you chills at will.